Moro, for a while now, been in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I've uh, been expounding in this series, ex- expositional, uh, consecutive, expository preaching is the pattern that I normally use. And I think we see even further evidence for that kind of thing in the very thing that Paul is talking about in the passage we're going to be looking at today. Uh, and uh, we've, Paul has the subtitle of the, of, that I've given this is Living today in light of tomorrow because what is coming and Paul has been talking about that he's going to be also talking about it in his second letter as well about the day of the Lord and about the second coming of Christ and Paul has been on that subject uh, recently but now he's turning to some very practical down-to-earth things as he begins to kind of wrap up uh, life in the community of God uh, as we're going to see today uh, and uh, our scripture Reading today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. I invite you to follow along with me either on the screen or in your Bible or a pew Bible in front of you or your device as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 through verse 22. And again, remind you, this is not the word of men, but the word of the living and true God. Hear it with appreciation. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's ask God's blessing now upon his word. Father, I ask once again that you will give us the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit to consider this your word. It is true. But Father, we won't understand it with our hearts and with our minds and our wills won't embrace it unless you do something supernatural beyond what words can say and what is written. Father, we need you to come and make your word living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword that it might accomplish your purpose in our lives, that we might walk in faithful trust and to, with you and in love for you and for one another. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Family Ties was an American sitcom that aired on NBC for seven seasons back in the 80s. And there are our Family Ties family. Uh, Some of you may have been around long enough to have seen an episode or two or more of this. Uh, This particular family 
reflected the shifting political ideologies of the 70s and early 80s, and uh, particularly expressed in the relationship of arch-conservative Alex, the son, played by Michael J. Fox, and his ex-hippie parents, Steve and Elise Keaton. Needless to say, they didn't see eye-to-eye politically. There indeed was a, a generation gap. But uh, in all the episodes and all the interesting things that happened, uh, egged on by those realities, in the final view of things, they still were a family. Despite their diverse perspectives, they still had, as the title suggests, family ties. Well, after taking the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has taken them recently on a journey out of this world. He's gone from the present, writing to them back 2,000 years ago, where they were as the family of God in the church there locally, and he showed them things to come. He took them to the final heaven, to the end of days, to the day of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he revealed and reminded them and comforted them and exhorted them in various ways about those things. But now Paul is bringing them back down to earth today. He brings them back to earth and reminds them that they have also family ties with one another. Family ties as being part of the spiritual family of God that we call the church today. That's what it is. The church, if you've been through my Explorers class, I talk about the church being one of the things that characterizes it as a family. A family of believers called to live together in covenant community and faithfulness that practically demonstrates the love for God, practically demonstrates love for God and for one another. Now today, we're going to look at what it is that ties the spiritual family of God's house or God's church together. We're going to look at that under three points of consideration. First of all, we're going to look at family leadership. Then we're going to look at family love. And then finally, family liturgy. Now, the word liturgy, uh, that word really is just another substitute word for what we would call worship. Liturgy is, is literally means the work of the people. At what? The service or work of the people. At what? At worshiping God according to his directives. And the order and the various ways in which we do that. Those elements are all part of what we use in our services to worship God. So that's our outline. Leadership, love, and liturgy. Let's dig in. Let's look at, first of all, Paul knows, just like we all know, that without leadership, a family can fall apart. It's not going to be everything that it's going to be unless the mom and dad provide good leadership in the family. And that same principle is true in God's family, in God's church. That the spiritual family of God, we are need leadership. And look at verses 12 and 13 again that we read and where that is pointed out and underscored by Paul. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you And are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, 
What Paul is talking about here, we want to wonder is who are the leaders that he's talking about? Who are these leaders that he mentions or that I'm referring to? Those that are laboring among them and that admonish them and do these things that were just mentioned in the text. Well, very likely they are elders because everywhere that Paul went, you see the pattern. You see it in Philippians 1.1 where it says there he appointed elders or overseers and also at times deacons as well. They're part of the, the, the leadership chain. Uh, and the elders, though, are, are, are always mentioned. Sometimes it also mentions the deacons as well. But the elders in particular have the responsibility that are mentioned here of admonishing, of shepherding, and overseeing, and having authority over, and serving. Um, and so Paul is talking about elders, and matter of fact, probably in Thessalonians, if you go back to the first chapter, two of them are probably mentioned by name. But this was Paul's pattern. And everywhere he went, he appointed elders, but the key is it was in the plural. Some people wonder, is this really, some people think this passage, this part is talking about clergy or about pastors, preachers, me. Others think it's talking about broader leadership in the church, including elders and, and by extension deacons as well. I think it's the latter. I think it is the latter. Of course, that includes me because I'm one of those. So today, what we would day in our designation, if you notice in the bulletin, when by my name it says teaching elder, and if you notice in Bob, uh, when it mentioned him being the, the assisting elder today, it mentioned called him a ruling elder. So, but we're both we're all elders. We are part of the leadership and authority structure in the church, in a Presbyterian church. And so I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about. I think he is talking about both. And so Paul is now, in our understanding, he's referring to teaching elders and ruling elders, and like I say, by extension, deacons who serve at their help and come alongside and assist. Now, what do they do? Paul says they labor among you, they do work, and they are over you. In some sense, they have some kind of a spiritual authority, and they admonish you. What's that boil down to? Basically, shepherding and teaching. Shepherding the flock, taking care of the flock, at times encouraging the flock, at times admonishing the flock, making sure the flock is going the direction God wants it to go in. That's the responsibility of the elders. And also teaching, teaching, preaching, various ways, overseeing, making sure that the teaching in the church is sound so that the word of God is going forth faithfully. Now, Paul encourages the people to respond to those who do this, to the leaders, to the elders here. He says, now I want you to respond to them three ways. I want you to recognize their calling, I want you to respect their work, and I want you to rest in their leadership. That's basically what he's said in those two passages. Recognize the calling. What do I mean by that? It's not just a job. Serving as an elder in the church or as a pastor is not just a job. It is a calling. It goes much deeper than just a place you go to collect a paycheck. It is something in which you are called to. And if some of us, believe me, were not called to it, we probably wouldn't be doing it. I assure you. I love my job, but I tell you what, if God hadn't called me, I wouldn't be doing this. It's a calling and it should be regarded as such. Secondly, respect their work. Because of the nature of their calling, Paul says implies it involves hard work. 
Leaders should treat, be treated honorably, therefore, with respect and honorably. Now, some of you think, hey, what, Joe, you only work one day a week. I mean, how can it be hard work? All I can say, if you'd like to follow me, uh, you know, somehow get a camera and just follow me a week. Um, you know, again, everybody, we think always their job is easy. You know, as long as it's not the job you have. We all think our jobs are hard. We think everybody else's job is easy or easier. Um, so, but the point is, the, when elders work hard for God's people and do a lot of things that are unseen, um, we need to be respectful of that and honoring that. That's not my words. I know that seems a little self-serving, but that's what God's word is telling us. And it says that in a number of places. By the way, I, I'm going to, to throw this at you. Um, it's humorous of nothing else, but it does sort of make the point. Um, and of course it's sort of, it, uh, it particularly, uh, helps, uh, preachers like me, but you'll have to bear with that. Uh, some of you know, we have a devotional book called, um, uh, our daily bread. Some of you have seen it. We, we provide it for, for you and there are copies of it you can pick up. Well, uh, quite some time ago, there was an article that appeared in there under the name, um, basically of how to get rid of your pastor. That was the name of it. And, um, and so uh, in this story told by Richard DeHaan in Our Daily Bread and the uh, 2003 edition of July, he said, some members of a local church approached another pastor from another church about how they could get rid of their pastor. So they went to another pastor for advice on how to get rid of their pastor. And their pastor wisely advised them this way. He said, look your pastor straight in the eye while he's preaching and say amen or amen every once in a while. He'll preach himself to death. (laughs) Pat him on the back and tell him his good points. He'll work himself to death. Rededicate, (laughs) Rededicate your life to Christ and ask your minister for a job to do. He'll die of heart failure. And finally... Get the church to pray for him. Soon he'll become so effective that a larger church will take him off your hands. (laughs) Now, all kidding aside, the point is we should, those who really do work, not that are not lazy, but really do work hard for the kingdom of God, they provide a spiritual, important spiritual service to us. And Paul says it's right to honor that. It's right to respect that. It's right to celebrate that. Because that's something tangible that money can't buy. And yet, it goes a long way when there is encouragement. And then finally, he says, rest in their leadership. What's that mean? Rest in their leadership. Trust God that he's given you the elders that he has. And unless they do something to be drummed out of the core, they are your spiritual leaders. And we need to follow them. Even if we don't understand all the reasons why, We're not always privy to all the reasons, but if the elders decide as the session, this is the direction we're going then, unless it's contrary to the word. Now, if they're trying to tell us to go contrary to the Bible or to what God's word says, then we say, whoa, 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 hold hold the phone. But if it's not spoken of in the Bible, if it's not there, then we need to be walking together in unity and in following and respecting their leadership. And you can be confident and rest in the fact that you're in the will of God when you do that. That's where the rest comes in. Rest in their leadership. It's the logical result that love 
and respects its leaders and results in peace as Paul talks about there in verse 13. Now, let me just say this kind of as a summary for this point and we move on. Truth be told, our independent and egalitarian culture does not like the idea of authority over. We, we, we want to all be equal in every way at all times. Nobody is better. We don't like that generally. And we, believe, we even like it less because of the culture we live in. We're not in a time in which there's an understanding. There has to be a pecking order. There has to, for things to work, for businesses and the military and all, all these things, there has to be some authority structure. You can't have everybody able to do everything and all be equal in every way. There has to be somebody that leads and somebody that follows. We live in such a time as this. We don't like the thought of being under authority, but I want you to listen to what G.K. Beale says about this kind of authority that's being talked about here, what Paul is pointing to. He says, this position of authority is not to be performed in a dictatorial or sinful way, but elders are over the rest of the believers in the Lord. They have a spiritual responsibility. They will be given account, the scripture tells us in Hebrews. They will give an account of those who are under their charge. Their authority can be exercised only insofar as the Lord has given them authority to act. They don't make it up. They can't create it out of thin air. They can only insofar as they are following God's directions in his word. That's where the authority, if they're faithful to the word and true to it, that's where the authority arises from. Church leaders are not autonomous sovereigns, but they represent Jesus's authority. They are commissioned by Christ to carry out their oversight of the flock according to his will, not their own. Now, if your leaders are doing that, if your elders are doing that, then they're worthy of being respected and honored and followed. Like I say, unless they tell you to go contrary to the word, then you can't do that. You've got to follow the scripture. But that's why God has given us leaders. And not everything is addressed in scripture. This is not a book that tells us how to do everything, make every decision. Everything it tells us is true. But it doesn't cover everything. That's why we need spiritual leaders in the church. So with that in mind, let's look at the family love. That's the next thing. Paul now is talking about relationships. He's getting real relational in verses 14 through 15. Family not only needs leadership, it needs to maintain loving relationships. Listen again, verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Now here what Paul is doing is he's naming some special family members in the, in the house of God, in the family of God. These are special family members because they got some things they need to work on and they need some help doing that. And so Paul names three groups. I'm calling them the disorderly, the discouraged, and the weak. Uh, your Bible, the, the word was the idle. But that may not be the best translation for that. Idle as in just we're just sitting around doing nothing. No, it, it's basically those who have, have kind of run ahead of the leadership 
and have decided, wait a minute, Jesus is coming back. We're not, we're going to just stay here and wait instead of, wait a minute, no, come on, follow. We've got to go together the direction and do the work God's called. No, no, Jesus is coming. We're going to just, they kind of have gone to the side. They're not necessarily lazy. They just have decided we're not going to follow that. We're going to sit around and wait till Jesus comes back. These are people that are very independent-minded and don't usually like to walk with uh, the rest of the, uh, of the herd, so to speak. So disorderly, idle, unruly, whatever you want to think of, that's, that's one group. There are those in the church that are like that by nature. Some are just very, very independent-minded, and that's who we find here. Also, there's the discouraged. Are they in the church? You bet. Every church has them. Uh, this church did, and so do we in our churches today. These folks are often see the glass, what? Half full. <laughs> Excuse me, half empty. Yeah. Half, some of us are half full, folks, normally. Others of us are half empty. We just, just tend to be a little more pessimistic, a little more optimistic, uh, and these are the folks that tend to be that way. These folks are that have, these are, are characterized by stuff like doubts, hurts, and fears. That's the people that are here discouraged. They are characterized by a lot of doubts, a lot of fears, and often a lot of hurts. And then, finally, there's the weak that Paul calls the weak. Now, who are these folks? Um, most likely, I think in context, and especially when you realize the same Apostle Paul that wrote this wrote Romans... And if you look at Romans 14, 1 through 15, 3, you see he's talking all about, um, about those that are weak in faith. Or in other words, they have sensitive consciences and they're not sure whether they can do things or not. I think Paul is likely talking about those that are weak in faith or in conscience. In other words, they're not sure. They see other Christians doing this, but they're not sure they can. They think, well, I don't, I don't know whether that's right. And the other, other Christians are well-informed. They know their Bible. and They say, yeah, look, this is really okay. But they don't, they're not confident of that. They're real tentative. They're not sure. It could be that that Paul is talking about here, and I think most likely is. However, another possibility is they struggle in the area of pure conduct. Remember chapter 4, verses 3 through 8? What was that all about? Sexual immorality. Maybe they were struggling. Some of them were struggling with their sexual conduct and trying to walk faithfully in a very crooked and perverse generation in which they live, just like the one we live. The saturated. Either way, there's the weak. So here's the bottom line. You got, the, you got the disorderly, the discouraged, and you got the weak. But Paul has one solution for them all. He has one solution. He said, you've got to come along beside these folks. And by the way, guess who he's talking to now? It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. It's not the preacher. They all have a role. They have, but that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to us chickens. <laughs> talking to us. The flock of God, the people, the family of God. We're supposed to be doing that for each other. We're supposed to be helping out these folks that have these areas of struggle. We're supposed to be encouraging them. We're supposed to be coming alongside. But how are we, what's the the key, bottom line thing that Paul is saying? Whatever their problem area, Paul says, here's an all-encompassing directive. I'm giving this to everybody, to all of you. Be patient with them all, without exception. 
Well, you know, I, I, I can work with the weak, but I can't stand to work with those headstrong, uh, disorderly people. I'm not going to. No, we're supposed to work with them and encourage them and come alongside and try to help them too. All of these folks need us to be patient with them. And you know what? Probably there are times they're going to need to be patient with you and with me. They're going to need the same treatment. Paul says in all cases, be patient with them all. In other words, don't shoot the horse that's lame. Don't throw them under the bus because they're struggling. Don't become judge and jury too quickly in an area in which they still need a lot of growing up and more sanctification as we all do. But if we spot it and we know that's true, we need to be patient. We need to keep praying for them. We need to keep encouraging them. And interestingly, when Paul goes on to talk about not responding, repaying evil with evil, of course, he's mirroring the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, Paul is saying, look, if in trying to minister to these difficult people with these problems, he said, even if they bite you sometime, even if they nip you, don't retaliate. Don't respond in kind. Remember, they may not be as far along. You hopefully are more spiritual and more mature. Take it in the, for the sake of Christ. Take that. Don't, it may not have been personal or intentional, but they nipped you. They bit you. But he says, don't turn around and said, you, you bit me. I'm going to bite you back. Paul says, don't do that. That's not the way the Lord Jesus wants you to treat. He's talking again about love operating in our relationships. And these are the ways it manifests itself. That manifests itself. Though leaders have a role to play, as I said, this is the work of the body of Christ. Life on life, support, encouragement, and admonition. That's what we're supposed to be doing for one another. That's the way we grow up. Read Ephesians chapter 4. Paul gave, God gave the gifts. Why? To encourage the saints, what? For the work of ministry. And he talks about as they really do that among one another, all the way in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, you see they finally, the result is they finally grow up into the maturing body of Christ that they are supposed to be and an outpost of a little bit of heaven on earth for the world to see and experience. But that doesn't happen if we just sit around and think, well, that's the elder's job. That's the preacher's job. No, we all have a job. It's ministry to the saints and coming alongside and encouraging one another. And you know what? I've seen that happen. I've seen beautiful things happen. It, you know, where I might be thinking about, you know, I wonder if I should be saying something. I would you know, kind of sense. Next thing I know, there's one of you. And you're coming alongside lovingly, trying to work with that person, encourage them. I find that the thing I thought was I'd have to go put that fire out. Three or four people have already addressed it, and it's, it's gone. It's done. It's handled. Because the body of Christ is doing its job. And that's a beautiful thing when that happens. I love this uh, uh, the, um, a song by Casting Crown. Some of you may have heard it uh, many years ago. It's been around for a while. It's called, If We're the Body, If We Are the Body. Listen to these words in the chorus. It says, but if we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? 
Why aren't his words teaching? If we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing them the way? Too many churches, that's true. We're the body of Christ, and yet all that's not happening. But I see that happening a lot here. Is it, is it is what it ought to be yet? Are we there? No. We're still becoming. We're still growing. But I think the desire is there to be life on life, come encouragers and admonishers and being patient with one another, and there's going to be a good result from that. Finally, the family liturgy. Now, I'm just going to be real quick on this. There's, it's, it's, there's a number of technical things in here, but this is the bottom line, I think, of this passage in verses um, 16 through 22. What is Paul saying? He's saying it. Whatever he's saying here, he's saying it to everybody. Do you understand? He is writing this to everyone. This is not to an individual. This is not prescribing individual behavior. This is to everyone, collectively. Look again at verses 16 through 22, and I'm going to tell you what I think the bottom line this is all about. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. On the surface, you may think that's just a bunch of uh, pious directives to each of us now. Now remember to pray more, remember to be more thankful. And that's an application. But that's not, I believe, what Paul is primarily talking about. He's talking about corporate worship. He's talking about public worship, not private. How so? Where do you get that? Well, number one, the verbs are plural. The verbs are plural. They're not singular. You all. Or you know how we say that in the South, right? You know what the plural of of y'all is, right? All y'all. All y'all. That's that's what he's saying. All y'all need to be doing this. It's public. It's not private. Secondly, the prophecy mentioned in the context, verse 20, is public, not private. The word of God, the prophecy being done, it's taking place in the church service. It's not over on the street corner in the market. It's taking place in the church service. Also, the rest of the context is public worship. Why? Because it involves a greeting. Did you see that part about holy kissing later on? You're going to get to that. It's not here, but in verse 26, we'll get to that next week. It's talking about the holy kiss. What is that? That's a way of greeting in that time, of greeting one another, welcoming one another. We do that. That's part of our service too, and that's why we do it. It's a way of welcoming because we are together worshiping as the body of Christ. We're not individuals sitting in our little cubicles and and trying to make sure nobody notices that we're there or we look at as if others aren't there. That's why it's okay to look around during communion. It's all right to smile at your brother. It's okay at your sister. And the letter was what? Paul directed it in verse 27. We're going to see that next week. To be read where? In the service to everyone. This is public, folks. And you know what we really see here? Rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving, greeting, listening to scripture. What are they? They're all elements of worship. The public worship of God. Now, Although the context points clearly to public worship is in view, that doesn't mean 
it doesn't have a directional flow and spill over. We should also be carrying it, not just from here. Okay, we're done. We're Sunday's over. No, we should be carrying it into the week. Thanksgiving, praying, rejoicing, serving, reading the scriptures, reading the word of God, studying the Bible. We should be sitting under teaching better opportunities to learn more about God's word. That should be going on other days of the week as well and privately. But it stems and flows out of this. Now, the Thessalonians were called to listen to true prophets. Did you notice that? They're called to not despise prophecy, not to quench the spirit. So they're supposed to be open to direction from God, but dare to listen to true prophets and reject the false one. They're supposed to hold fast, prove all things, and hold fast that which is good. That's in context of the word of God purportedly being given. Hey, I've got, I've got a word for you. I've got a will. I'm going to tell you God's will. Well, they're supposed to be doing something with that. They're supposed to be analyzing it. They're supposed to be considering it and finding out whether it's in line with the rest of this book. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament complete. Paul was one of the ones that was going to write a large portion of it. And others, they, they, the Bible they had was only the Old Testament. And so they had to make sure, Paul is saying, you've got to make sure you're testing everything against what is already revealed so that there's no contradiction. How are they to do that? 1 Corinthians 14.32, listen to this. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. Did you hear that? The spirits of prophets, anybody claiming to be speaking a, a, a word from God or giving something that's important for the people of God to know back then, Paul says they are subject, meaning they get checked, kept in line, found out whether they're true or false by the prophets. In other words, what's already revealed, what the prophets have already spoken, what Jesus referred to when he said they have the Moses and the prophets. Hear them. See, it's already, it's already there. They're supposed to be checking it in line with that. Paul goes on. I mean, also, we, we get this uh, further understanding of this if we look at 1 John, John and 1 John 4.1. And in Acts 17, 11, listen to these verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. This is talking about those who come along saying, hey, I'm a prophet of God. I've got a word from God. How do you know? He says, don't believe every one of them, but test them to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then in Acts 17, 11, what did Paul say about the Bereans? What did he say about them? They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they were examining the scriptures. Even as Paul, the apostle, preached. As a prophet from God, as an apostle, they were examining the scriptures, the Old Testament, to make sure that what he was saying squared up with revealed revelation and truth. You see, there are too many people today, folks, whether it's a sermon, whether it's counsel from someone, or whether it's another brother or sister comes up to you and says, hey, I, God told me to tell you blank. You better measure that against this book. Because I've had Christians, and you probably have too, I've had Christians say, well, I, I prayed about this, and, and I believe God is telling me to do this. And I prayed about this, and I got a peace, and I, I, I'm confident it's the will of God for me. And yet, right there in this book, it says, don't have that relationship. I, I believe God's telling me it's okay. No, he's not. That's not God. He's not going to contradict this book. You have to test the prophets, all prophecies, all spirits must be tested in line with the word of God. Now these, my friends, are the family ties of the people of God. 
Family leadership, family love, and family liturgy. Now it's time to have a family meal as God's people that we call the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to help us as we uh, come to the table to understand that once again, this is, this is not about what we've done or our, our will do or promise to do. Uh, it's about what's already been done, already finished, and done by your son 2,000 years ago in his death on the cross. These are the emblems. These are the reminders. These are the tokens. Help us to remember that love for us, and may it move us to greater love for you and one another. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.